This is the networking lunch, guarding your soul while caring for the soul of others with Jan McCormick and the last part of the Chaplain's Workshop Leadership Institute. So a couple things quickly by, by way of who I am for those who don't know me. I'm Jan McCormick. I'm a retired Air Force Chaplain. And I have now been teaching at Denver Seminary and teaching chaplaincy as long as I was in the Air Force and a little bit longer even. And that's kind of a professional piece. I'm an ACPE certified educator. So if CPE is a phrase you know, I now do that for a living as well. And I'm a board certified chaplain. And I'm the chair of my denomination's endorser committee. And that's probably enough about the bio stuff. Some of you that were with us for the chaplain's program yesterday, you've been asking, so I'll just make a quick announcement. No, I don't have a blood clot in my leg, which is what I was afraid of. It's just I've been teaching online by sitting on my butt since 2020 and standing all day long yesterday, my, my legs all got swollen. So that's why I'm gonna be sitting and talking to you today. But all that as well, and thanks for the prayers and thanks for the extra help, PJ and Jess. So where we're gonna to go today. It doesn't matter what kind of ministry you're in. If you're in ministry at all, if you're a helping professional, you're going to be working in times when people's hearts, minds, and souls are in pain, in trouble, or broken. And it affects us. It will always affect us. It cannot not affect us, unless you're not good at it. If you're good at it, it will affect you. So what I want to talk to us today about is, as Mark said, is how do we guard our own soul while we're caring for the soul of others? There's six different types of secondary trauma, meaning it didn't happen to you, but you're picking up on it. I'm going to quickly go through the first five and we're going to spend a lot of time on the sixth. The first is what we call significant indirect trauma. I witnessed or I heard about somebody other's person's crisis. So I saw it, I drove by it. Maybe it's a large car crash on a freeway, or it may be somebody told me about um, what it was like to be in Urvalde with the school shooting. So that's a secondary trauma that can affect me because I'm picking it up from somebody else. Oh, I should also stop. Our chaplains know this, but being a good chaplain that I am, I have what I call my rules of engagement. I play off of all of you to see if it's working and if you're following me. And if you aren't, then I do everything I tell my students at the seminary not to do. I'm going to talk louder if I can. I'm going to talk longer because I'm a Baptist preacher. And as a good preacher, I'm going to take an offering at the end. So feel free to interact as we go. With a significant indirect trauma, what happens is we react just plain too strongly for the fact that it didn't affect us. Somehow it connected in our minds and our hearts with something. The picture here is about a flood. That was the first crisis I worked in in college. And my house was not flooded. We actually ended up being on a little bit of a hill I didn't know we had. But everybody around us was. And so I did evacuations for the people that were flooded and actually reburied corpses that came up out of the cemetery, which was fascinating. 
but seeing a flood, I can still think of it. I can still smell the flood mud as if I was there. Second kind is being re-traumatized. One of the things we know about life is that stress is cumulative, meaning it'll stack for us. This causes stress, this causes stress, this causes stress. I could probably handle that until this happens. And then it just stacks. The more exposure to any kind of trauma that we have, the more likely post-traumatic stress disorder will occur. Whoops. Um, anybody in here not know what I mean by PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder? You've at least heard the word. Okay. The third is what we call individual hero shame. And this is especially where we as chaplains and pastors are going to be working with other, uh, what we call first providers. And they're going to be the ones, as they said during 9-11, everybody else is fleeing the towers and they're running into it. Somebody's fleeing the fire and they're running towards the fire. Somebody is fleeing the shooting, they're running towards the shooting. And we'll look at these folks and we'll say, oh my gosh, look at all these heroes. Most of the people who do that, it's not a good thing to label them a hero. Any idea why? Give me, give me some talk back. They couldn't save everybody. They couldn't save everybody. That's a good piece of it. What else? They don't feel like a hero. I'm not a hero. I'm not a hero because it's my job. It's just my job. That's what I'm paid to do. That's what, what I signed in for. Wouldn't everybody do that? So they experience some shame because we're making them heroes, but they experience some shame because in their minds, they aren't this level of a hero. The next is what we call individual survivor guilt. It's similar, but it means this trauma happened and I survived. Why me? Why was I the one survived and this one didn't? Um, as St. Paul says, of all the sinners, I know I'm the worst. Why me? Why did I survive? Survivors, in my opinion, are often overlooked when we pastor people that have experienced secondary trauma. We forget about them. It's like they survived, they don't need any help. Well, shame is something about how I feel about me. Guilt is something about how I feel about what I did or didn't do. And so this shame piece, I'm ashamed because I survived, kind of gets buried because it's all about me. And they're not making noise, and you don't see it, and they don't have shrapnel marks on them. But in their soul, there's a rent, there's a wound. And we as caregivers forget about them a lot. Think about that when you go back to your churches or your places in ministry about people who have survived things. And you'll hear them making meaning in a lot of different ways. Our, our survivors are often unable to cope because in their mind, they shouldn't have survived or somebody else should have. Now, I don't really have survivor guilt, but I have a survivor story of myself. Um, when I was assigned to Turkey, there was this young couple in my chapel and they had three kids just tremendous Christians, absolutely wonderful. She just went in for elective nose surgery because she had sinus problems. Well, she was allergic to the anesthetic and she died. 
And for a while I kept saying, I've had so many surgeries, there aren't any more body parts to give up. Why didn't I die? I don't have any kids to worry about. Why not me? I'm older. Why not me? There was a piece of me that said, if you put the two of us together, it should have been me and not Karen. That's what a survivor guilt sometimes looks like and feels like. They aren't unthankful to be alive. But except for Judaism, there's no ready ritual across the spectrum of American spirituality that thinks about how do we work with survivors. And quite frankly, Judaism didn't even start doing that until the Holocaust. How do we care for the survivors? The fifth kind of secondary trauma is more a clinical title, and it's called individual dissociation. Now, dissociation clinically is a way to look at my body's here, my mind isn't. Okay? Maybe, maybe it's been you sometimes, or maybe you've felt that way, or you've seen that with somebody else. In the military, we used to call it like a thousand-yard stare. What's happened is there so much going on in this person's life, so much pain, so much trauma, and that's the only way their mind can handle what they're going through. So they actually float away, okay? It's a derealization. It's a dreamy, foggy place. Life is distorted. Some people will tell you everything slowed down or sped up. Sights and sounds get louder or quieter. But in general, they aren't present, okay? There's a depersonalization that happens with it too. As I said, the body is present, but the mind is gone. Now that's a way a lot of people cope with trauma. Kids will cope with trauma if they've been, especially if they've been sexually abused that way. Their minds will flip off somewhere else and go into a fantasy land to be able to handle what they're going through. Um, prisoners of war will go through that a lot of times. That'd be similar. So if I can't handle what I'm going through right now, my mind's going to go somewhere else. If it goes for short amounts of time and comes back and the person can help it come back themselves, that's not <clears throat> tremendously dangerous. It's almost like taking an adult, an adult break. Um, in the military, at flying planes, we used to talk about touch and goes, where you'd practice flying and you'd land, I landed, now I'm going to take off again. Now I land, now I'm going to take off again. If I can choose to do that when I'm overwhelmed by this trauma, I'm choosing to touch down into the reality and then go somewhere else and then come back again, that's okay. That's fairly healthy. It's when they get stuck into, I don't know how to come back, that it gets unhealthy. And when that happens, oftentimes it's going to get even worse. Without getting psychiatric support and help, then we get into what we now call DID. You might have heard it as multiple personalities. My, my mind splits into parts to take care of me. This is the brave me. This is the kid that, that needs protected. This is the, the me that's going to show up and nobody will know anything's wrong. This is the me who's this. You can get stuck there. Um, 
uh, during 9-11. 9-11 was, I had just finished retiring from the military and just started at the seminary. And it was our convocation at the beginning of the semester. Walking in with all our little glad rags is what I call them. And you walk in, you sit down, and we have prayer, and we have worship, and we introduce new faculty. I was going to be one of them. But before we started that, somebody handed our president a note that said, the tires have been hit, all military report now. And I sat there and felt like I'd been hit myself because I couldn't report now. I just retired. That's where I wanted to be. I didn't feel like I belonged to the seminary yet, and I didn't belong at the school yet. Is that making sense? So I was, I was totally untethered. I had no idea where I belonged. Um, there was a part of me at that point that just disassociated from the entire rest of the convocation. What I did to end up taking care of myself a lot, um, there's a couple things that helped. But one is I literally would do the touch and goes on purpose. I'd come back and I'd read a junk book, my term, that I didn't have to take a test on or write a test on. I'd watch any science fiction movie that existed just so it could be a fantasy. Um, you'll hear later on some of the ways I take care of myself is water. Heck, I'm a Baptist. I do water well. <laughs> but I found ways to take care of me where I could float out and then come back. The other thing that happened, guys, you won't get this, but the ladies in the room will. We kind of use the ladies' room as an alternate office sometimes. <laughs> And so I was in the ladies' room, and I heard two of my students in there saying, this looks like it's really hard on Jan. You check on her today, I'll check on her tomorrow. And I went, yeah, good idea. You know, part of me is going, you're the instructor, you're the faculty, these are the students, you should be taking care of them. The rest of me said, yeah, I need it. So this fifth type of secondary trauma gets into that kind of piece where it's just so overwhelming, your mind can't handle what you're going through. Anybody go through that during COVID or was it just some of the people I know? Nursing staff, hospital staff? Anybody in here from hospital healthcare staff? That's what was going on with a lot of our staff. Just too much pain, too much death, too much confusion, too much we don't even know if these emergency measures are gonna work. And because we take care of these patients, we can't take care of this person over here who has cancer or a heart attack. And, and there was a disassociation, dissociation that happened with them. What that's trying to do, what our mind is trying to do to protect us, what God helped our minds do to protect us, is what we call numbing ourselves to feelings and to pain. If I don't have to feel it, then I can probably live through it. You can do that for a while. You can't do it for a long time. And you certainly can't bring yourself out of this by yourself very well. As people are going into this form of secondary trauma, there's often attempts by themselves to fix it what we call self-soothe, to get grounded, to come back down to reality, to do some of those touch and goes. And a lot of those things are not healthy. This is where we do over-the-counter meds. This is where we get into, oh, well, 
shoot, I'm from Colorado, they didn't legalize marijuana, may as well try that one. Didn't try it when I was a kid in the 60s, may as well try it now. Um, maybe I'll just go to the bar tonight. Maybe I'll just get so involved sexually that I don't have to think or feel. So we try to do self-soothing to come back to some semblance of, I can handle this. Okay, let me stop here for a minute. For those first five, comments, questions, testimonies, did you find yourself in any of these? Did you find your, I'll use the word clients for all of us. Did you find your clients in any of these sometimes? Yeah? Anybody wanna share a little bit about it? Yeah, I find in the military context, alcohol is the favored uh -huh. um, self-soothing technique. Uh-huh. It's like socially appropriate, it's applauded. Yeah, and it's usually social. Right, and, it, and it, you have, and it, the, one of the sad things about it is it actually does make you feel better to help regulate it for a season. It, it, it like works temporarily, mm -hmm. so it, it's uh, convincing. Mm -hmm. like this, this seems to make me feel better. Right? Mm -hmm. so a lot of our folks end up being unregulated. Mm -hmm. They have too much adrenaline and cortisoids, so they don't actually, actually have the ability to feel at rest. And that works not just for um, dissociation here, right. but it works for all of these five. Right. Right. You know, how do I self-soothe? Alcohol is one of the ways. Right. And it's, as you said, more socially acceptable, more readily available. Oftentimes it's done in a social community, so I feel I'm not alone. Okay. Other comments? Yep. Um, in hospital culture, there, there's a real dark humor. Mm -hmm. It's really condoned. Mm -hmm. Again, that same kind of thing. There's there's a camaraderie in mm -hmm. it, but it's very dark mm -hmm. and very cynical, um, and it speaks to really the pain that people are in. It is. Yeah, it does. It, it, have you heard the term gallows humor? That's kind of what that is. It's like I'm going to laugh because if I don't, I'm going to fall apart. Um, one of my girlfriends in the military became, unfortunately, an expert on, on plane crashes. And one of the plane crashes that she worked on, the first one, you know, they, they cordon it off because now we're not doing recovery. I mean, we're not doing rescue, we're doing recovery. And so they cordon it off with the police tape. And outside of that police tape was a man and a woman. I'm hoping they were self-ordained pastors with a megaphone saying, if you don't find 100% of every body in here, it will not be resurrected. Their friends were ashes. These were their friends that these 20 year olds were trying to find. And in that plane crash, there was nothing but ashes. Um, she said that night that she went with the, the young kids out to eat that had been doing this. And they were young kids, they were in their 20s. And they went to uh, some chicken place, kind of like, a, like we had with Chick-fil-A, right? And here they are, the group of them in military uniform going in to get something to eat. And then there were other civilians around too. The licky loos trying to figure out what happened with the plane crash. And one of the young kids says, eh, parts are parts. Just let's take some more back and we'll bury them and then they'll get resurrected. That's gallows humor. That's how I handle this kind of pain. Yeah. There's a piece to that 
jealous you where you mentioned about the camaraderie. So there's something about mm -hmm. shared hardship. Yep. And you yeah, try to make sure nobody on the outside heard it. Perfectly true. That's especially true for all of our first providers. You can't even go home and tell your spouse about some of the stuff. And you don't want to bring that, that pain and that dirt home with you. But I can tell this to somebody that's been through it. I can tell it to somebody who was in the war with me. I can tell it with somebody who did a rescue with me. I can, I can talk to that, but I can't talk here. Yes, ma'am. During the pandemic, we started uh, foster care. Uh-huh. Um, so we had two very medically fragile oxygen feeding tube. Um, and it was really tough. Two years, but this was also mass coded and social workers come inside, our kids being left at home, and it's very difficult to build relationships with the parents when they don't have jobs. But these girls ended up going home to bad situations. One girl, after two years, her mother she went home, and then her mother was found dead two months later. We still don't know where she is. But then, after that period, we took in another set of kids. And that, that disassociation is mm -hmm. very hard to yeah. attach. Yep. And then you have the guilt of not being attached because of that pain. And then that, that dark humor of, oh yeah, they're probably going to go back home to these druggies. And you, you have compassion for the parents at the same time that definitely struggles with that disassociation. That's a really good example and a really painful thing to go through. And so many went through it with case after case after case after case. Which brings us to where I'm going to go next. The, the one I want to spend most of our time on is the sixth kind. Um, most of you have heard of compassion fatigue. I want to talk about compassion fatigue because that's us. It affects caregivers only. If you care about others, you are in danger of and will experience compassion fatigue. If you don't, you shouldn't be a caregiver. And that's the, that's the paradox of this. It's not the same as burnout. So let me give you a couple quick definitions here. Short definitions of burnout is the cost of working too much. Um, it's a holiday weekend. It's Easter weekend and I have all these services happening and I've got two more deaths in my church. And I have this happening. And oh, by the way, our kids are coming back. They come back when they're in their 50s too, by the way. I just want to warn you all. <sighs> um, 
Yes, they do. They keep coming. Um, so you've got all this stuff going on, and it's just overwhelming. Somehow at the seminary, every single thing that we have to do for the seminary is due in June. Why they like June, I don't know. I'm not happy about June. It's like, here's another task, and it's due in two days. Thank you for sharing that with me. Hope it gets done. So it's just stacked for that reason. And it's really the cost of working too much. There's a cure for that that actually helps. What helps with burnout? Just be, yeah, a Sabbath. And what was this, what's the Sabbath? What's the difference between that and what you're doing that's burning out? Not working. Take a break. Okay? <laughs> Come to General Assembly. Take a break. Go on a wonderful vacation. And if you can't go for a long amount of time, go into a mental vacation for yourself. Find some kind of a break. Go someplace different. You can just pull out of this and then go back later. Compassion fatigue is different. Compassion fatigue is the cost of caring too or so much. And they oftentimes go together. Oftentimes the burnout comes because the compassion fatigue is on top of these other work tasks and they pop together. So now you've got the holiday um, services going on. You've got people at your house that you're trying to entertain. You're going to do two people's weddings. You've got two people's funerals and you've got the people from the funeral that you're still going to need to support afterwards. So the caregiving and the task pop together on you. Is that making sense? Yes. Okay. Oh, by the way, anybody know who or what's going on with that Navy chaplain there at the bottom? Where are my Navy dudes? What is, what's he doing? Barrel, let's see. By the way, that's my first graduate. And he's exactly at the rank that I retired as. Pretty cool. So they do combine because stress and trauma combine. Longer definitions. Compassion fatigue is a state of tension and preoccupation with individual or cumulative trauma to our clients, to people we are responsible for. And it manifests in one or more ways in us. Re-experience the traumatic events of others. How many times do I have to think about this gal who came in in tears and said she'd been gang raped? and then it's trafficked. And I can almost see it and feel it right here. Avoidance numbing of reminders of the events. This is where oftentimes you'll go out of your way not even to drive by that place that had the school shooting. Persistent hyperarousal. What's hyperarousal? Anybody? Adrenalized state. Adrenalized state that does what? Starts promoting black and white thinking. It starts making you hypersensitive. Your senses. Yep. Yep. And and what does it what does it manifest? How would you know I'm hyper aroused? There's, there's a lot of somatic indicators. You might have somatic like, meaning body. Uh huh. Like twitchy. You might be looking around. Uh huh. Really alert. Like you've had too much caffeine, but you have none. I'm married to a cop. Every place we go, his back is to the wall and his eyes to the door. That's a hyper arousal. It's a feeling of when's it going to happen again, okay? It's going to happen again. I've got to be always on alert. 
It's a way your body protects itself, but it burns itself out by protecting itself that way. Okay, now this is to all of us. If you want to guarantee you're going to have compassion fatigue, do this. Be a caring, compassionate, empathetic person. I hope there's nobody in here that doesn't fit into that category. Experience recurrent or numerous varied situations that elicit in you, bring up in you, the feelings of compassion and compel you to provide some sort of relief to the other person. The outflow of what I give away doesn't equal the input of what's coming back into me. Okay? Isn't that sort of a definition of us? Yes. Yeah, it is. And that compelling piece. Somebody has to care for somebody. It's my flock. It's my responsibility. If I don't do it, who's going to? If that happens, compassion fatigue happens. There's a universal vulnerability to us who are caregivers. The attributes which make you and me really good caregivers makes us vulnerable to compassion fatigue. And it's the same as make us excellent caregivers. If I were going to be hiring people to be caregivers and I wanted to make sure that they weren't vulnerable to compassion fatigue, I would hire absolutely nobody. It wouldn't work. The risk for compassion fatigue increases if they're back-to-back -back heavy cases or other forms of secondary trauma like we've talked about. I know there'd be times when I was still on active duty in the military when I come home and say ministry would be wonderful if it wasn't for people. Yes. Or there are times when it's just this one came in and then this one came in and this one came in and this one came in and they all hurt and they all need care and there's only me so the back-to-back -back heavy cases it may combine also this is where it gets even wonkier for us it may combine with our own traumatic memories and past not necessarily the same thing happened but the same feeling might have happened okay so when 9-11 happened, I felt like I didn't belong. That was a feeling. There have been other times in my life before that where I felt like I didn't belong. Just try being an evangelical woman in a double male world of religion in the military and tell me how well that works for you. Especially as a little hippie flower child. I heard the, the morning speaker, I'm an original. <laughs> and yes, the 60s look like now for sure. <laughs> So it's going to combine. It's going to combine with my memory of that work in that flood when I was a teenager. It's going to combine with my memory of taking a gun away from somebody in the military. It's going to stack for me just as what I stacked on for people I care about. They don't have to be the same incident. They could feel the same way. There's early warning indicators to tell us that we're on our way into compassion fatigue. Reoccurring thoughts that can't be put aside. One of my friends calls them mental earworms. Or tinnitus, now that I'm getting tinnitus in my right ear too many times on the flight line. 
it just sticks in here and it doesn't go away. And in my memory, it sticks in here. You become dissatisfied, bored, irritable. When I'm overwhelmed, I get, I get snippy. So much for my pastoral care approach. Feel off balance. What you're giving out isn't being replenished coming back. A heavy, breaking heart from hearing, seeing, feeling, the keening, the cries of other people. I promise you I'm not going to sing to you, but I am going to share this with you. I want you to, to listen to this as a poem when I'm talking about compassion fatigue now. It's called Doctor My Eyes by Jackson Brown. Hey doc, my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of tears without crying. Now I want to understand. You see, I've done all that I could to see the evil and the good without hiding. You've got to help me if you can. Doctor, my eyes. Tell me what's wrong. Was I unwise to keep them open for so long? Because I've wandered through the world and as each moment has unfurled, I've been waiting to awaken from these dreams. Other people, they go just where they will. I never noticed them until I got this feeling that it's later than it seems. Doc, Doc, my eyes. Tell me what you see. I hear their cries. Just say it's not too late for me. Doctor, my eyes can't even see the sky. Is this the prize for having learned how not to cry? How does that song, that poem, feel to you after this conversation about compassion fatigue. What do you see in that? Come on, Andy, you and I teach through songs. 2020 through 2022. Yeah. And how so? Say more. Talk about trauma stacked on top of trauma. Yeah. And I just keep going and I don't even cry. Don't even cry. Just keep my eyes forward, my head plowed, and go do my job. Anybody else pick up something from this? Because I heard it more as I'm crying so much. Mm. It could be either, couldn't it? Yeah. It could be either that I just kept going and, allow, and didn't allow me to feel, or I felt so much. I'm just worthless right now. I can't keep doing it. Good point. Yeah. My dad, I grew up the son of a Presbyterian minister, EBC minister, passed away in 2019. His name's Ronald Reagan. You may have known him. Uh, great, great pastor. Uh, but as I followed him around as a young kid, we would go to funerals. We'd go visit people in nursing homes. We'd go visit people in hospitals. But his method of ministry was basically you do not show sadness to people who are sad. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. You're there to lift them up. You have to be the strong one. You have to be the strong one. And so I think I learned from an early age that, hey, when people are sad, you got to, even though you might be sad, mm -hmm. you're the pastor. Mm -hmm. You're the one they're going to rely 
allowed. Mm -hmm. So you're really not allowed to be that way. Uh, the only thing is I think it carried on over into his personal life. So he couldn't be that way in front of his family. Couldn't be that way in front of his wife. Mm -hmm. I can't be that way in front of my family. Shut it down, mm -hmm. you know. But but that is what, that's the burden you bear as a pastor, mm -hmm. uh, or at least the one you think you have to bear. Right, I think so. But I, but I, I get that from the old guys. And that's right. Some of the, the older ministers that I huh? all sort of operate the same way. You're you're there to be the rock. You're not the one. I think the other thing that taps into that, and and this is just my observation of my old age. Um, I think we in America have done a tremendous disservice to you guys by talking and telling you, you always have to be strong and you have to be the only one that could be a protector and you're not allowed to feel. The feelings don't go away. They just don't come out. And then I work with, with your wives. I am one of the wives. And I go, how come you won't even connect with me? Well, I'm trying to protect you from what hurts me. I get that, but I'm here for you. I think we've done a disservice culturally in the United States with, to, to many of our men. I think the military does it too. I think first providers do it too. You know, who else can be the strong one to go do this? Shoot at the seminary, they keep talking about, well, you know, parking is gonna be under the lights for you ladies. I'm going, I could take out the guys here. What are you worried about? And I did, by the way, I took a Marine down one time when we had an active shooter exercise. Yeah, the chaplain took out the Marine. How, what, who was that? But in general, there's this piece about some of us are supposed to always be on the front line, always be the one that handled this, always be the one that, that don't have to feel, always have to be the one that can't share, and don't have a circle around us to even share with. That's part of that sadness we're going to talk about. Thank you for bringing that up. And yeah, it, it works with pastors too. Especially if you're a single pastor. How many of you are in a single pastor in church? There's nobody else to even call. You're on 24-7. You don't, you don't get to vote. You're all by yourself. Okay, I don't want to leave you here. I, want, I don't want to leave you with, we've described this. I want to say, how do we get out of this? How do we guard our own heart? Because compassion fatigue will happen, but it's a condition, it's not a disease. It's 100% curable. If, 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 if we're willing to do some stuff for ourselves and recognize our humanity. Last time I knew the term Messiah cannot be used by any of us on our resumes. That has been taken. So how do you prepare for this to happen? And I mean a big trauma coming or just prepare for something to happen. Anticipate that it will. Contrary to some, I think, pretty lousy theology, being a Christian doesn't keep us away from the traumas of life. Being a Christian doesn't say we're going to get what we want all the time, and it's going to be easy. In fact, everything I read in Scripture says, can you carry this cross? Are you sure you want to sign up for this? 
anticipate that after the incident happens, there will be reactions. One thing I found about me, you may need to find out what, work, what is true for you. I can do a really good job working here with the people in crisis. And I don't let myself feel. And then I feel, I fall apart and I need somebody to catch me. The good news is I've learned I need somebody to catch me. Practice coping skills that work for you. And we're going to talk about a few of them in a minute. Practice healthy and psychologically calming skills. Here's a real easy one you can do with your own clients, but heck, you can do it with yourself. Any of you um, musicians, singing musicians? Yeah, you're going to know how to do this. Okay, so what I want you to do is sit up straight. I got too many wires on me. Link your hands behind your head. Okay. Now you're going to breathe with me. We're going to breathe in. We're going to breathe out. Ready? Breathe in. Two, three, four. Breathe out. Two, three, four. Breathe in. Two, three, four. Breathe out. Two, three, four. Okay. Where do you feel yourself breathing? Where's the breath? It's in your diaphragm. It's not up here. Okay. So when people get overwhelmed, when you get overwhelmed, it's the easiest thing in the world to figure out how to do this. When you say, just breathe, show them how to breathe. And do it like you're a pace car. I do NASCAR too. I'm a NASCAR chaplain on top of a lot of other weird things. Um, so you're pacing with somebody. Breathe with me. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. If you're talking to Christians, you can make this even more helpful. I want you to breathe in the Holy Spirit who will guide you. I want you to breathe out the pain that you've experienced. I want you to breathe in the cloud of witnesses and saints around you. I want you to breathe out the lies that Satan tells you. And they're focusing on you, which grounds them in right now as well. It's a real simple thing to do for you. It's a simple thing to do for your clients. Practice what I call those healthy, intentional touch and goes. The dissociation management skills. Man, after 9-11, I did what President Bush says. I was great for the economy. It was a good thing I only had one credit card. I went and shopped. I bought gifts for people I didn't even know. Okay? That was my touch and go. Skip out of the pain, go back into it. Skip out of the pain, go back into it. Plan for early treatment of post-traumatic stress because that goes hand in hand with this compassion fatigue. And there is such a thing as post-traumatic growth. If you do some of these things, we'll move into PTSD. Whoops. How to help somebody else. It's easier to help somebody else than it is ourselves. Because you'll notice it in somebody else before you'll notice it in yourself. The first thing is don't allow them to continue on the front lines. How many times have I heard, you're the only one I trust to do this? I'm so glad you're here. Nobody else could do it like you do it. And we keep them on the front lines of giving care. 
Um, a real good example for me, again, after 9-11, uh, the Navy Admiral Chaplain, Barry Black, who's now the Senate Chaplain, sent me and a couple other evangelical chaplains around the world to work with, especially as evangelical chaplains. And one of the stories I heard was from the, the Coast Guard, which were the first people on scene during 9-11 because they just came down the river. So it was the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard chaplain, a wonderful Jewish rabbi who did an incredible, incredible job of caring for the survivors and the first providers in his own team. And two things happened to him. One is in the military, most of us have the military chaplain, and then we have various titles for it, but our enlisted person that takes care of us and we work with, okay? This gal that was working with him was also Jewish. And her history of her family is of being a Holocaust survivor. She was doing just fine working with him after 9-11 until all that ash that covered everybody that she thought about was just burned paper was what? Yeah, the ashes of people. And her mind flashes back to her family's history. She started ripping off of her clothes, literally, and running towards the river to jump into the river. And he tackled her, put his jacket around her, took her over to the, the clinic folks, got her the help so that, that she needed, stayed with her. But Rabbi called me and he said, Jan, what am I supposed to do with this? And I said, well, first of all, I think you did what you should have done to help your, your teammate. You know, you didn't anticipate it. None of us anticipated that. But that's what happens when trauma affects trauma, affects memory of trauma. The other thing I said is, how long have they kept you as the chaplain in charge? Oh, I've been here for eight months. Wrong answer. He'd been on the front lines too long himself. Now he added her trauma to his. Okay. We make a mistake sometimes of saying, especially if we're in charge, we're the senior pastor, we're the senior chaplain, oh, my people are out there, I've got to be out there with them. Yeah, you do, but not 24-7. And if you've trained them well, trust them to do their job and call you if they need you. Likewise, don't make them the expert. When, when he called and said, Jana, what am I supposed to do? I said, tell me what you did do. How did that work? How did that not work? Was it helpful? Was it not helpful? Solution-focused therapy people that I've taught, that's our language. How did that work? It worked really well for her. She didn't feel alone. She wasn't as scared. She was able to say what was going on with her and why it kicked. Before she didn't even have words for it. This is something you can ask of any of those other secondary trauma people, but especially here. You can say, what's been the worst part about being a caregiver for you? And then you can say also, what's been the best part? By asking what's been the worst part, what do we do for them? Why is that a gift to the people we're caring for? Gives them permission to have a worst part. Exactly. It's okay to say I had a worst part. I don't have to be the hero or the expert on the one on the front lines. And oftentimes the worst part is 
there are so many people and so much need and there's only one of me. And I am not the Messiah, even though I wish I was at this point. Well, the statement is so nice and presumptive. Say again? It's so nice and presumptive. Yeah, I presume that there is a worse part. There's going to be a worse part. And it's okay, and it's okay to have one. Mm -hmm. But I presume there is one, whether you share it with me or yep. not. Well said, Jen. Okay, now it gets harder. How do we help us? Recognize that you're going to be a disaster victim too. You will be. You are. You will be. A victim doesn't need to stay a victim for the rest of the victim's life. This doesn't have to be a new identity. Do what we tell other people to do. I don't know how many times I've said to some counselees, what would you tell your kids to do? Well, go ye therefore and do it. And then they'll look at me, what would you tell your students to do, Jan? Go ye therefore and do it. Okay. Avoid the news and television especially. You don't need to re-traumatize by seeing it over and over and over and over and over. Sometimes all of these times where we have the memorials that come back, here's five years, 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, man, that'll pop us back right into it as if it was yesterday afternoon. If you're the caregiver in some mass casualties or big traumas, you're gonna know what the data is. You don't need to listen to the news tell you what the data is. And hear talking heads tell you about it. Know your limits and accept them. That was a hard one for me. That was a real hard one for me. I learned this from a, a general's wife. Um, my husband's rank was higher than, than mine until he retired. And then we retired at the, I retired at the same rank. But I ran with the wives of his peers that I wouldn't normally been with because I was a junior chaplain. Does that make sense? Okay. And so before I knew I had thyroid cancer, we were trying to figure out why my body was getting so screwed up. And a wonderful Christian flight surgeon friend of mine, Claire, said, I'm just putting you in the hospital. We're going to do tests. Well, you know what they do. They do tests. I mean, there's not a liquid in your body they're not testing. I was like, okay, I guess I just get a break over the weekend. Well, all these wonderful wives would come in to see me, and they'd bring me cards, and they'd bring me flowers. And the best thing is they brought me a, a nightgown that didn't have a hole in the back. That was wonderful. But I was embarrassed. It's like, all I'm doing is peeing in a cup and getting my blood drawn. What is this a big deal for? And the now general's wife, she was a colonel's wife at the time, puts her hands on her hips and says, how dare you? How dare you push our love away when we allowed you to care for us? Whoa. From then on, my term was, know the humility of being helped. There's a reason God said we should do things by twosies in a church. But boy, that really hit me. It isn't just for me to be strong. It meant that I was really discounting other people. That was, that was a new reframe for me. So know your limits and it's okay to have them. This week it may be tough for you to work with this particular kind of client because this is what's going on in your own family. Um, for those of you that, that are working in healthcare, it may be really hard for you to work with um, pediatric patients when you've got little kids of your own. Of course it would be, why wouldn't it be? 
my first internship as a social worker before I was a minister was working in an old folks home and it really was an old folks home back where they stunk. It was really bad. First patient I looked at looked just like my grandma and I couldn't watch my grandma die again. Not then. Couldn't do that that day. So someday it's a temporary limit. Someday it's just, I'm not good at this. I can work with these kind of clients. I really don't know how to work with these. Know your limits. Learn this humility of being helped. And probably the most important thing for us as Christians to remember is keep God sovereign. It's His responsibility to care for His people. He allows us to work with Him in it. Huh. Yep, it just died. Technical difficulty. But I have another microphone. Okay, I'll try to talk louder as we keep going because I know we're getting towards our end here. Aha. Swap you. Our battery is wonderful. <laughs> Isn't technology of Satan some days? <laughs> I may need to turn you up a little bit. Yeah, a little bit more. It's on though. Okay. So here are some things that we found that work. And for those of you that were in the chaplain's program yesterday, Mark really unpacked a lot of these for us. I'm gonna look at it more at the 30,000 level. Find out what works for you to recharge your batteries and do it. It doesn't need to be a spiritual recharging to be spiritual, okay? Is, did I? Quit preaching and gone to meddling. All right. What works for you? There's sometimes that I'm in so much pain, I cannot read my scriptures. There are sometimes I'm in so much pain from the pain of people that I don't have any words to pray, which is when I ask the Spirit to pray in my behalf. But there are other things that I found out that work for me. When I was going through my thyroid cancer, army chaplains at the Presidio when it still existed. Um, they had this really neat thing that the nursing staff did that I've never seen since, with a lot of questions. And one of the questions on it was, how do we know if you're afraid? And you know how you answer things without thinking and it's really what's been true and you didn't know it? I wrote, oh, I'll get sarcastic. Okay, when you're afraid, what helps you? Again, without thinking, I said, I need to be in or around water and I need to listen to soft music, soft Christian music, classical music, jazz music. Okay. What can we do to help you through this surgery? Sarcastic me who's afraid and isn't going to tell anybody I'm afraid says, I want a room by the Golden Gate Bridge. Because I was getting radioactive iodine, they evacuated three rooms right next to the Golden Gate Bridge put up their lead line stuff and put me in the center. That's the first time it occurred to me my whole life I've used these things to take care of me. When I get scared, I need to be in around water. When I hurt, I need to be in around water. The more scared I am, the deeper I go. That's when I go do my scuba diving. Huh. I can even sit next to a waterfall and be okay. 
And I've taught swimming since I was 12 years old. I never knew I took care of myself that way until they asked me. Or that those are the times I'd sit with God and have conversations. Those are the times my tears would add to the water. So what works for you? Think about it. If they ask you these questions in a hospital, what would you say? For some of us, it's exercise. For some of us, it's please don't make me exercise. <laughs> Music, writing, shopping, art, prayer, being out in nature. That's why some people come to Colorado, just to be in nature. Take those touch and go temporary mental health breaks. Do it intentionally so that you can intentionally come back. Read soft books, watch a comedy, soak in the tub. Take something that takes your mind away and can bring back whatever it is that works for you. Practice your own calming techniques. Prayers and different kinds of prayers. Meditation. For some people, it's yoga. Walking, deep breathing that we practiced a few minutes ago. Avoid, avoid, avoid being re-dramatized. Avoid the TV, the newspapers, the water cooler rehashing of the events. This is one we have the ability to do that a lot of people don't, and by gosh, we don't take advantage of it. Form a trusted person or friend group that you can debrief with and ask for their help. It may be in here. Yeah, Blaze. Yeah, I was just wondering, too, uh, so like trauma, and I mentioned <coughs> loss of a spouse or a loved one yesterday. How do you, or when do you check in with somebody who's lost a loved one without maybe re-traumatizing them? Good, good question. So it depends on how you say it, first of all. Um, I've been thinking about you today. You just came to mind. Not, how are you doing? You okay? I'm here to help. Put on the hat. The other thing is any time that there are anniversaries or special times that might hurt, that would be a time to check in. Um, one of my colleagues at the seminary, her husband died at 30 from surgery he shouldn't have died from. They've got three young kids. Father's Day was pretty rough. You know, that's a, I'm here. Yeah, good question. And think about what would help you. What would you need if? Another good way to do it. Yes, ma'am. I was just going to add to that. My daughter in all taught me that instead of saying, how are you? Just to say, I'm thinking about you. Right. Or share a memory of that person. It allows them to. You want to swap out? In fact, somebody just sent me one of those because my husband was diagnosed with cancer um, about a month ago. Good news is it's the easiest kind of cure and it's a stage two. But the C word is still a C word. And I've been the unhealthy one. He's never even been in the hospital. This is new for us. And she just said, hey, Jan, thinking about you. That's all I needed. It's an invitation to share if they want to share. And it doesn't put you in a, a top-down position. I'm here as your white knight in shining armor to fix you. Um, but going back to, to this kind of group, 
we have a built-in group as, as clergy to be able to talk with each other and share with each other the garbage that's going on and the pain that we have and the joys that we have. Because when there's so much pain, you forget there's joys too. Oh yeah, I just went through that one, but I gotta focus on this one. However, there may be a time where it doesn't feel as comfortable for you to share with somebody who's a peer, okay? You might not wanna do this with the people that you work with. Um, Depends on what you need to share. Find a group, create a group. For the last 15 years, I guess it has been now, for the last 15 years in Denver, um, I've formed a group with no more than 12 people. It's biblical, you know, to have 12. <laughs> we formed a group of 12 people that are all experienced chaplains in charge of departments. And we're the ones that can sit down there and, and say, I've got this patient who's driving me absolutely bonkers. Can I move him to your hospital? <laughs> and we don't do it, but we need to say it. I've been in ministerial associations where we've said the same thing. Let's everybody take the one parishioner who drives us nuts and everybody move them one to the right. <laughs> if there isn't one that exists, find it for yourself. Because your compassion fatigue is going to need you to be able to vent, to unload, not just to find a way to fix. Be careful, guys. It's not about fixing. It's about feeling and hearing. Make some personal rituals for yourself that help you do some of these things. Just the rituals of the church oftentimes help us. Baptism, communion, confirmation. Those kind of rituals will help us. Lent, Advent, but think about making some personal rituals that help you. For instance, some of us will go into the shower and say, I'm going to wash this pain right off of myself and watch it go away. Um, again, it's water. It works for me. <laughs> Write your thoughts and feelings down. Burn them. Nail them to a cross. Bury them. Some of the stuff we do on youth retreats, <laughs> do for yourself. Make a collage of how you've survived before. So you can remind yourself, God has brought you through Egypt. God has brought you through the Red Sea. God has brought you through and he's not gonna drop you on your head now. Make some of those rituals for you. And these work for our clients as well. Okay, I don't think, when are we supposed to be done now? Uh, 15 after. Oh, I do have time. Okay. So here's an exercise you can do. You don't have to do it right now. You don't have to write it, but you can think about it. Think about having three different containers, whether they're cups or wells, chalices, bottles. You've got three different containers. And this is going to be a snapshot in time for you here today. In the first container, if 100% is full, what percentage of you, as of today, has gone out in care for others out of that 100%? I'll give you time to think about it. If you want to write it, you can write it. How much in compassion have you given away? 
Heck, I know some of you did it for me last night when I thought I had the blood clot. You give some of your compassion away. In that second container that's empty now, put a percentage of what you have refilled that cup with. What percentage has now been refilled if it was empty? And maybe, what did you use to refill it? What worked for you? I did this morning what I knew I needed to do for me. I soaked in the tub. Thank heavens the hotel had a tub. I'm a Baptist too. I always bring a swimsuit just in case. <laughs> What percentage came back in this week after you'd given it away? Did you get a percentage of back here being in the GA? Being in fellowship with people that are similar? Have the same kind of ministry? The same kind of joys? The same kind of concerns? And then look at these two cups. One was 100% full and I dumped this much out. One was 100% empty and I put this much in it. What's left now? Yeah. One of the great things for me about my current position, because I'm more of an introvert person, so one of the things that kind of recharges me. A little louder for me. I'm more of an introvert, so one of the things that kind of recharges uh -huh. me is being alone or reading. Uh -huh. I like reading science fiction. Uh -huh. So in hospice, I get to go visit a patient, then I get to get in my car, and I get like 15 minutes. Like, Before you get to the next one. I've heard that through it with a lot of hospice chaplains in particular. That taking that time between, uh huh, and see that's your t that's your touch and go too, because you're doing something else with it mentally. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I used to beat myself up for, everybody would tell me all the spiritual things that I should be doing. It's like if you really love Jesus, you've got to get up early and have your devotional. I would rather get a root canal than get up early. <laughs> And I don't know how many years I have prayed and prayed and prayed. Dear God, you know I love you. Please change me. Please change me. Please change me. <laughs> One night I'm driving home from work at night, probably about 9 or 10-ish, because in the military we have 13-hour days, and then we do our paperwork anyway. And I'm driving home, and I'm crying, and I'm complaining. Like, you've just got to change me. I need my time with you. And it was almost like I heard God over the radio say, who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> I'm open 24-7. You're my night shift. It's perfectly okay. But nothing I ever read about devotional ever said that. If I was holy, I was supposed to do it in the morning. Okay? That works for a lot of people. It didn't work for me. Find what works for you and do it. Practice it for yourself. Don't be feeling guilty that you did it for yourself. Go ahead and practice it for yourself. Are, are these helpful? I hope. I hope. Okay. We have literally only three minutes left. Any questions, any comments, any thoughts, any sharing of anything that, that hits you that you want to share with others? Remember, I take an offering if you don't play with me. <laughs> yeah. And why do you uh, prefer the term clients and not care recipients? Oh. First of all, it's shorter to say. <laughs> That's very true. But also because where I work, I work with a bunch of therapists. My, my chaplaincy division is within the counseling division. So it's more common. 
when I write my CPE evaluations, I talk about care recipients because all of my CPE people aren't in the hospital, so they're not all patients. Yeah. Yep. Come on, talk. Okay, I think there's one thing you need to be careful of. Okay. There's something called justified and unjustified guilt. Oh, there is. So when you have someone who you have helped and you have you have prayed for, you have cared for, and they still blow their brains out. Yeah. It's not your fault. Amen to that one. That is unjustified. And Satan would do would like nothing more than to make you a useless piece of dog meat. Yep. By making you feel guilty for something not yours to carry. So let me, let me add to that a, a little bit quickly. The difference between guilt and shame is guilt is outside of me, okay? And it's usually something I feel because I did something or I should have done something. And you're right. <laughs> I think just like, like Jesus in the, the upper room, one of you will betray me and everybody goes, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? That's that unjustifiable guilt. The cure for guilt and unjustifiable guilt is the same. Come to the cross. Come to the cross. But that's important. Shame ends up being, this is how I feel about me because I presume this or somebody has continued to say this about me or the world has said this about me. Don't carry the load for something that's not yours to carry. Yeah. I've been really, really fortunate. I've had a minimum of 28 suicide ideations in my ministry. And of those, I've lost nobody. But I sure missed some that I didn't know were suicidal. I missed them. And if somebody is intending to kill themselves, you can put them in a locked padded cell, wrapped up, and they'll find a way to die. What we typically do is buy people time because things will change. That we can do. That we can say, I will walk with you. You will not be alone. That we can do. Those are things we can do. Thank you for bringing that up. Others? Yes, sir. Again, I want to uh, thoughts about, about if there's a difference between good humor versus versus the dark humor. One of the examples mm -hmm. is like... The gallows we humor. About, yeah, I got, a, um, I got a bunch of chaplains at my base, and every Tuesday we go to a bar... And we get food because I'm Presbyterian. I also get not food. <laughs> and, um, and, we, and we sit there and we talk. And some of it is still coded in humor. Mm -hmm. I know part of that is from the military aspect that we come from. And part of it's guy humor. Oh, yes. It really is. Yes. Um, and, and, so, and so I was just wondering, hearing about knowing that, that there can be this dark humor and knowing that at times it can be negative in your experience have you seen a line or some flags that you've noticed that are yeah the, the first thing I, I would say was what went wrong with the the example i gave you is it wasn't just within the contained community it was other civilians that were listening in parts as parts kind of thing okay that parts as parts it was letting them talk about what they'd heard these horrible pastor type people do um but what it does a lot of times, that dark humor oftentimes allows us to vent what we're feeling and yet deflect the fact that we're feeling it. So it's almost like 
okay, I'm not going to dissociate, but I'm not really going to be totally here. Um, if it's followed up, especially later on, I don't know how many times I've said, don't you lie to your chaplain. Okay, but that's a relationship. You have to have the relationship. It has to be trusting and it has to be in a place where it works. Did that with you yesterday. Yeah. You know, don't you lie to, don't you lie to all these chaplains here. Does that help some? Okay. Um, the other thing I would say is watch out for the guy humor that we women don't get a lot of times and get annoyed at. <laughs> the way you, you make jokes and put each other down to put each other equal is not something we women do. And when you do it to me, it hurts. So just watch out for that. And ladies, know that, that it's not necessarily personal that any guy is trying to do it. It's just how they handle feelings they're not supposed to have. A hand over here? Yes, ma'am. We can do one other quick one. OK. So yeah, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. And I'll hang out if you want me to. Yes. Yeah. Those moments where the dark humor comes out and it surprises me. You know, I call that like, <coughs> you suddenly leave word vomit, you go, ooh, I didn't even know. You know, and, and especially like you said, you're amongst outsiders. Someone asks you how you're doing. And you shock yourself by your answer. And you go, oh. Mm-hmm. What would you say, OK, I recognize something's off. I'm leaking. What's step one? For yourself? Yeah. For yourself is first of all to recognize it. Apologize to somebody that you've just thrown up over sometimes. <laughs> um, I've gotten better at knowing that I need to have my emotions out of the way before my brain kicks in. That, that's how I'm wired. And I found people that are tremendously logical people for me and I'll come in and say, I need, I need your logic. Talk me through this. And then I did, and then I went over here and I did, and he'll go, okay, you did okay, uh, fine, I'm all right. <laughs> but that's been helpful to me. And on the opposite side, I've had people that say, I need to think about the emotional piece. And they'll come and tell me that. So again, that's kind of building that community, okay? But if we leave it all locked up inside of here, you're going to really burn out and compassion fatigue out. We weren't meant to do this by ourselves. God made us for community. Thank you. That was a good question. I'll stay here and, and chat with any of you as you need yeah. to go wherever you need to go. So there's, there's never enough time for wonderful things, and this is a wonderful thing. Let's show our appreciation to that. So as she said, uh, we're going to hang out here for a little bit.